talk about technology and democracy, but it makes sense to go back to the beginning. So in 1897, Guillermo Marconi, Irish-Italian inventor, first exhibited his wireless telegram. He's on an island across the Bristol Channel. I sent the communication six kilometers, and this is just telegram. It's just dots and dashes. That's all it was in the beginning. The British Post Office came to observe and to make sure that um, see the technology being tested out. And very quickly, the British government was very enthusiastic. The British government bought technology and started installing it right away. And very quickly, within just a couple of years, these giant antennas were built so they could send telegram messages all the way across the Atlantic Ocean, all the way to Newfoundland from Wales. And, um, wait, where's, where, I, I'm out of the camera now, aren't I? I can't <laughs> you were trying to block me, weren't you? And I just sort of like, didn't even realize it's okay. We've got a camera, everybody else has a camera here to stay in lineup, and my natural inclination is to roam while talking, so we're going to try to rein that in. Um, maybe this will work. Am I still on the camera over here? Yeah. Barely, yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay, so um, so very quickly, the British Post Office picked this up, and, um, and um, telegram. The wireless tele telegraphy became a thing. But it was only dots and dashes. You couldn't talk over the thing right away. Early radio was just dots and dashes. In 1906, however, the very first human transmission of human voice took place. Um, uh, this guy whose name I was, I, I've been trying to memorize his name and I forgot it. Fessenden is his surname. I can't remember. Reginald Aubrey Fessenden, that's his name. Reginald Aubrey Fessenden, who's a Canadian, although uh, working in the United States, was the very first person to ever have his voice sent out over radio. And it was on December 23rd, 1906, he sent out a, a, um, a broadcast to all the ships at sea of the United Fruit Company in the Atlantic Ocean. It was to wish them a Merry Christmas. Apparently, in that moment, the person who was supposed to do the broadcast got stage fright, the very first stage fright, on the radio and didn't talk. And so it said Fessenden just grabbed the microphone and gave us a little Merry Christmas. And then he took out his violin and played O Holy Night for all the people at sea. The very first broadcast of anything other than dots and dashes, 1906. It took, however, almost 20 years from there before anybody got the idea of using this new medium for politics. The very first recorded political speech by radios in 1922 was given by Senator Harry New of Indiana. And New was stuck in Washington, D.C. for a vote. He couldn't go home to campaign during that year's midterm elections. And he felt the people of Indiana were missing out on his speeches. So he took, he got access to the Navy's very powerful radio equipment and broadcast his speeches back home to Indiana from Washington, D.C. The very first, uh, as far as anyone knows, very first political speech by radio, which was immediately followed by the very first political scandal about the use of radio for political speeches, because the opposing political party said that he was using government resources for partisan ends. So very, very quickly, the politicization of radio becomes the debate over the politicization of technology. But that kicked off something very big. In 1924, the US had a presidential election, and it was called the radio election. People went out and bought home radios for the first time, which were not cheap in those days. They bought something they could sit at home and listen to the national conventions that were choosing the candidates for, for um, president of the Republican Democratic Party. So people gathered at home. It was an advertisement from that year. People really got involved with it. They really took a role in electioneering politics. And then very famously, by the 1930s, Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, began broadcasting from the Oval Office in his famous fireside chat, a series of about 10 addresses on the Depression and on the war out to people to tell them what the government was doing. So during this whole period, the 1920s and 30s, uh, people are talking about the ability of radio to revolutionize politics, to do good things for our political, for democratic discourse, right? It's allowing us to listen in on the parties deciding who to nominate. It's allowing us to hear from leaders, et cetera. It's a good thing for democracy. In 1935, there was a big conference in New York bringing speakers from across North America and Europe to talk about how radio was going to change democracy for the better. 
back up 10 years, 1923. Guillermo Marconi, the inventor of the radio, joins the Italian Fascist Party. He was a member of the Italian Senate. He became a lead member of Mussolini's Council of Eminent Italians. Uh, Marconi kept a yacht in the Mediterranean. He lived on this yacht for the last 20 years of his life, floating off the coast of Rome, and he was there. He lived on the yacht so he could test all kinds of new radio equipment. This is Mussolini come to visit him on the yacht. Mussolini liked to hang out with him. And Mussolini was very, very fond of this new technology. He very quickly took to it, and uh, he liked crowds. And so he was told the radio is a very big crowd. So you often see Mussolini in, in video footage, um, rare video footage, but Mussolini shouting into radio receivers. But in all these things, in political developments in the 1930s, Mussolini was sort of the, the warm-up act. He didn't quite know how to use the media. It took Hitler's particular form of genius to use this properly. So this is one of the first Nuremberg rallies. And you can't see it very well, but if you look very, very closely, see these red arrows, or you can see the heads of microphones. There are two little microphones there, and they're partly to project everybody assembled in Nuremberg, but they're also to go out over the radio. If you look through old photos of Hitler at rallies, there was always a radio microphone somewhere in his vicinity. It was just constant. It was just a constant part of how the Nazis organized political discourse in Germany during that era. At the Nuremberg trials, Albert Speer, the Nazi architect, said, through technical devices like the radio and loudspeaker, 80 million people were deprived of independent thought. It was thereby possible to subject them to the will of one man. Joseph Goebbels, the Nazi propaganda minister, had a similar view. In 1933, he gave a speech where he said, it would not have been possible for us to take power or to use it in the ways we have without the radio and the airplane. He had the big technology of the era. And then he went to explain how this works. He says, we live in the age of the masses. The masses rightly demand that they participate in the great events of the day. The radio is the most influential and important intermediary between a spiritual movement and the nation, between the idea and the people. So at the same time, that the radio is being picked up in North America as a way of um, using democracy effectively. It's, of course, being picked up in parts of Europe as a way of seizing the will of the people. In fact, not, uh, radio was so, um, was so important that in that same year that Goebbels made the speech, he oversaw the rollout of a new technology. It was a little little radio called the Volksempfanger. It was basically a cheap radio. In those days, radio was expensive. Still in the 30s, and this is after the, this is this following the depression. People couldn't afford big home radio sets. So the German government diverted money from its own rearmament effort to subsidize the production of cheap, basically handheld, small portable radios that you could buy on a worker's salary and keep in your house. So everyone would have radios. Everyone would have these small, cheap, portable devices to listen to the Fuhrer give speeches. Radio was, in fact, so important to the regime that it even played a somewhat symbolic role in the lead up to the war. On August 31st, 1939, members of the Gestapo dressed up in army uniforms they'd stolen from the Polish military and attacked a German radio station uh, in the town of Glebitz on, on the what was then the German-Polish border. They attacked the radio station, beat up the employees, seized the microphone, and gave an address in Polish. And this was all fake, of course, claiming to be Polish freedom fighters uh, acting for a greater Poland. The next day, Hitler gave a speech over, over the radio talking about, not this, he didn't say this by name, but he talked about these incidents where these Poles were, were, uh, were uh, invading Germany's sovereignty and interfering, and that day, Germany invaded Poland and kicked off World War II in Europe. So even at, the, even at that moment, the role of a radio station and the way it expressed the, the Nazi uh, self-conception uh, in Central Europe played a role. Why am I talking about all of this? Well, I wanted to give a little pot of history of the development of radio so you could see the timeline here. You could think about how long this took. So 1897, Marconi's first transmission monitored by the British Post Office, out to 1939, where this little this incident at the Glavitz radio station took place, that's 42 years. That's a long time. That's 
basically a generation, a bit more than a generation. It's time for people to grow up, to be born and grow up and get used to being political adults with new technology in the background. It takes about that long before you can start to see the way a technology in its development is affecting political changes. So let's think about another 40-year period, starting in 1978. 1978 was the first year of internet bulletin boards. In 1978, a couple of computer enthusiasts in Chicago unveiled the first internet bulletin board. Anybody who had a home PC, which wasn't everybody in 1978, and who had a, a, a modem could dial into this and post stuff on it. This was a new thing, because up to that point, internet communications were one computer to another. They weren't a public board that everybody could go to. In a real sense, this was the first bit of social media. This was the, 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 the creation of computer-enabled multi-channel discussion. For a while, though, it was just a province of, of enthusiasts. Not everybody had access to it. But already, by 1991, some historians claim it was already having a political effect. So in 1991, the US invaded Iraq for the first time. The Soviet Union fell apart. There was a huge era of political turmoil. And lots of standard forms of media were being blocked by governments. And so some people say that internet relay chat, IRC, a little picture here, it's hard to see at the bottom. It's some, some, some folks in this room may remember IRC. It actually still exists, although I don't know if anyone uses it for anything other than the laugh that he's People still use it, cool. Um, and anyway, so IRC is internet relay chat, this real-time communication over the web to get around government restrictions of what traditional media could display. And so some historians say this is the first instance of social media or computer-enabled media being used to uh, get around or affect political events in some way. By 1995, America Online was one of the most well-known companies in the world. It became normal people from their homes to be able to connect over dial-up internet. And by 2004, of course, Facebook began to exist at Harvard. Facebook was not the first social network, but it was the one that survived and the most successful from that era. And after that, very quickly after 2004, large percentages of the North American <coughs> world population were on Facebook. 2007, I want to flag as a really important date, because that's when Apple released the first iPhone. That was the iPhone 1 that was released. And this, I think, is particularly important because this is moving from social media being available on a clunky device, even a even relatively unclunky device like a tablet, all the way to being able to put in your pocket on a cheap, relatively small device like the Volksempfanger, the cheap portable radio that everyone had to get access to radio connection all the time in Germany. Now we have, always in our pockets, a very relatively cheap, but not that cheap, relatively cheap device to get on the internet from anywhere at any time. Okay? And after that, perhaps not surprisingly, the role of social media politics picks up very quickly. So the very next year, Barack Obama is elected president of the United States, widely seen as the first social media candidate. He announced his candidacy on YouTube, and many people say that local organization for the Obama campaign was done largely through Facebook. One year later, in 2009, Donald Trump joined Twitter. His very first tweet was about how you should watch Donald Trump on late night with David Letterman as he does a top 10 list tonight. That was his first tweet. However, he very quickly turned to other subjects, such as Barack Obama's birth certificate. And with that, we had the, the world had its first Twitter candidate launched onto the world stage. Two more years later, 2011, the Arab Spring takes place. And a bunch of people at the time credit Facebook and Twitter with playing an essential role in organizing opposition to regimes in the Arab world. These days, if you, if you check and if you look back, Mark Zuckerberg in particular has, has decided that, oops, actually Facebook wasn't that involved. It wasn't as big a deal as we thought at the time. Um, now that the Arab Spring did not turn out terribly well in most cases, people are less enthusiastic. But at the time, this was trumpeted. It look how revolutionary social media is for changing the world, the world, making the world more democratic. And then the last stop on our part of history here is 10 days ago, 
February 2018, when uh, Robert Mueller's special counsel issued an indictment of 13 Russians who work out of this building, the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg, who are alleged, according to the indictment, to have systematically interfered in the US presidential election through the use of fake social media accounts and bots, of which I'll have more to say in a few minutes. So that's 40 years again. Right? Now, I'm not trying to drive some precise parallel here to suggest that this is like the ominous um, shadows of, of fascism creeping through from radio into social media. It's not a, such a nice, clean, uh, simple parallel. My point, however, is that this 40-year figure about that time, a generation and a half or so, is about what it takes to start making sense of the role in politics of some new technologies having, and we're only there now. So I'm not saying something calamitous is about to happen, something equivalent to the Third Reich, but what I am saying is that we don't really understand this technology and the effect it's having. So we can simultaneously be talking about our social media is great for democracy, the Arab Spring, and all of that, and it can simultaneously be doing really bad things to us that we're not paying as much attention to or only now starting to pay attention to. So I'm going to be talking the rest of the time about the really bad things and what we might be able to do about them, if anything. I need a framework here. So I'm going to start with something from uh, the British philosopher Thurman Williams. It's going to give me a framework for thinking about democratic debate. And this is an odd way to get the framework, but I find it helpful. This is from a paper he wrote, um, published by 1990. And this is about, um, mostly about free will, about moral responsibility. But along the way, he sort of parenthetically starts talking about the role of free will and holding people accountable in politics. Okay? So, it gives us three models of how politics work. And the first one he calls the politics of mere control. And this is the idea where if you're interacting with somebody, you just treat them as something causally manipulable. You know, I can get you to do what I want. I can get you to follow the rules by threatening you if you don't follow the rules. I'm, I'm engaged in the politics of just getting you to go along. Your business is fit for slaves. This is where if you're, if you're a slaveholder, you don't really care why the slave isn't doing what you want. You just do whatever is necessary to get them to do what you want. You don't really care what, why the, what, whether, whether disobeying so long as you can get them to obey. He contrasts that with what he calls the politics of acknowledgment. You can think here about a model of like um, a monarchy where the people aren't slaves exactly, and if they say to you, oh, I disobeyed your rules, but it was for a good reason. I was distracted that day. I was confused. I was drunk. Um, so my, my family just died. I was distracted. I didn't mean to disobey your rules. I didn't mean it. And then you might, in your benign majesty, say, oh, oh, I see. You didn't mean to disobey. As long as you didn't mean it, I will forgive you, but you better obey next time. The idea is we start to recognize this idea of moral responsibility. People can make mistakes, but as long as they as long as they, they try again next time and try to obey the rules, then it's okay. The idea that the difference here is between I'm gonna do anything necessary to get you to do what I want, and I'm gonna allow that you can screw up sometimes by accident, as long as you don't purposely disobey the rules. And then the last form, the democratic form he talks about, is what he calls the politics of communal deliberation. And here the idea is when you screw up, when you act against the rules, we actually even allow that you can argue that the rules are mistaken. You can argue back. You can say, I disagree with the rules, and we should change the rules. We should have an argument. We should, have, we should introduce reasons for why the rules are the way they are, or they should be changed. Right? This, what I'm pointing to is just a standard point about how democratic discourse is supposed to work. But I think it's helpful to build it up the way Williams does, from thinking about holding each other accountable. Because I think what it exposes is that in democratic deliberation, communal deliberation, we think of each other as contributing to what Kantians call a space of reasons. It's not just about threatening people and using force to get people to do what we want. It's about justifying ourselves to other people and getting reasons back from them. Okay, so here's the model. And the idea is that good democratic debate takes place according to the politics of communal deliberations. That we're holding each other accountable for the decisions we make. So I'm going to focus now on the contrast between these two things whether or not current contemporary debate 
more closely resembles a politics of acknowledgement where it's, um, you know, we'll, we'll, if you screwed up, will we'll you try again? Versus we're actually justifying uh, our decisions and justifying holding one another accountable. Okay, so keep that contrast in mind. I'll come back to it. But what I want to talk about now is some mechanisms for how social media is corroding this politics of communal deliberation, how it's changing and uh, altering negatively how we engage in uh, tra treating reasons with one another. So I'm going to start with the first one that I'm calling the lost presumption of sincerity. In order to engage in communal deliberation, we have to believe that we're genuinely expressing reasons for our beliefs. When I say I don't agree with the rules, we should change the rules. I'm not just doing that to try to get out of my responsibilities. I'm actually sincerely expressing a disagreement with you. That needs to be a presumption in order for communal deliberation to make sense. So enter the internet. You've probably all seen this. It's a famous New Yorker cartoon, Peter Steiner's New Yorker cartoon. On the internet, nobody knows you're a dog, is the uh, famous line. What you might not know, you might not know about this, is that this is actually 25 years old already, this cartoon. This was actually published in 1993 in the New Yorker. If you think about it in a timeline, our 40-year timeline, that's actually much closer to the beginning than it is to the present day. So we've known for a while, in some sense, that the internet is a place where you can't necessarily trust people are what they seem to be. And yet, there's a Twitter account that was active during the US presidential election in 2016, the Tennessee Republican Party. It had, at one point, up to 100,000 followers. And um, it was it actually used direct messaging to talk to local Tennessee voters and activists and organize rallies in support of Donald Trump. It was actually run out of St. Petersburg, according to the Mueller indictment. This was actually a front used by the Russian 13 who were indicted 10 days ago. There's another site, Blacktivist, which was present on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and organized rallies around the, um, around the death of Freddie Gray, who died in police custody in Baltimore several years ago. Um, it also tweeted out messages about the election. And again, according to Mueller's indictment, it was actually around in St. Petersburg. It was also a front. Right before, the couple days before the election, it tweeted, choose peace and vote for Jill Stein. Trust me, it's not a wasted vote. Jill Stein was, is a, was the Green Party candidate, a protest candidate for many people. The Mueller indictment is really interesting to read. Uh, it's not that long. I recommend people read it if you haven't, because it really exposes some of the details about how, about how this operation worked. Draw your attention here to the last couple sentences. Specialists were instructed to write about topics germane to the United States, such as US foreign policy and US economic issues. Specialists were directed to create political intensity through supporting radical groups, users dissatisfied with the social and economic situation, and oppositional social movements. Now, importantly, the way this was done involved two levels. There were the actual humans doing this, who were actually posting and creating these fake accounts and, and engaging. Then there are bots. Bots are little computer programs that simulate Twitter accounts. They post stuff, they just repost it over and over again. And they, most importantly, they amplify and retweet or repost the things other people have posted. And so quite a few bots seem to be in the control were essentially paid for or operated by members of this group. And the objective was, as it mentions here, now, people have paid attention to things like this, an internal review apparently within the group for one of their fake accounts called Secured Borders, criticized one of their operatives for failing to sufficiently criticize Hillary Clinton. It's imperative to intensify criticizing Hillary Clinton in further posts. In other words, somebody's boss said you aren't being mean enough to Hillary Clinton. And bring it up. And people have focused on this as, you know, the inevitably in, in US politics, this is about which side and who are they supporting. But what people are missing to some extent, I think, is this kind of thing. This is also from the indictment. After the election was over, after it was over, this was the weekend after the election, the same group used these same techniques to sponsor a rally in New York City. And, uh, it was called Show Your Support for President-Elect Donald Trump. On the same day, in the same city, 
the same group funded a rally in New York called Trump is not my president. So at the same time, the same group of operatives who were funding opposed rallies regarding Trump's presidency after the election had already been decided. The purpose of all this didn't seem necessarily, I, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not taking a strong position here on whether or not um, the Russian intelligence services wanted Donald Trump to be president, but the point of this didn't seem to be so much about the outcome as about causing chaos along the way. And what's interesting, you might have heard that, that's a point people make in, in um, analysis in the media lately, but what I think people miss about this, that I haven't seen discussed much, is that that's not just a strategy by Russian operatives, it's actually part of an ideology. So we have to take a brief detour here into 20th century Russian philosophy. So Ivan Ilyich, uh, I don't think is super well known. If you've heard of him, you might have heard of him as Putin's philosopher. That's how he's referred to by some people in the media right now. And Ilyin was, a, um, was a, a Russian thinker. He's really hard to categorize. People call him a fascist. I don't think that's quite right. He was more like some sort of neo-monarchist, maybe the right way to describe him. Um, he grew up in Russia under uh, the, young under the Tsar, and he experienced the, the uh, overthrow of the Tsar, and then he experienced the communist revolution, and then he had to flee Russia. He was not very popular with the communists. He moved to Germany, spent most of his life in Germany, writing about Russia. And he advocated that like, a strong state. And so what I want us to look at for a moment right now is what he said about democracy. Okay, so this is a, this a few quotes from a, a book that was published, I think posthumously, but he wrote in the later years of his life, and this is his views about democracy. So he says, citizen in democracy is given the unlimited right to temptation and the corruption of others, as well as the subtle transactions of self-prostitution. He's guaranteed the freedom of, of disingenuous lying and underhanded speech and the ambiguous calculated admission of truth. He's granted the liberty to believe liars and scoundrels, or at least pretend to believe them. For the free expression of all these spiritual seductions, he's handed the ballot. In a democracy, freedom of opinions should be total. Government officials will not dare infringe upon this or attempt its curtailment. And the most stupid, most harmful, ruinous, and foul opinion is sacrosanct already by virtue of the fact that there's a destructive fool or traitor who has proclaimed it, all the while hiding behind its inviolability. And so the regime will continue until the seduction undermines the very idea of voting and readiness to submit to the majority. Then, voting is replaced by rebellion, and the organized totalitarian minority seizes power. Now, what's important about this, I think, is that Lenin was not advocating this exactly. He wasn't saying, this is, this is our goal. He was trying to diagnose what he saw as the reason why you shouldn't be a democracy to begin with. Democracy, he thinks, built into it is this weakness, that it has to allow the most stupid and disingenuous and lying people to express their views and it can't tell them to stop, and so therefore it clears a space for the dangerous, uh, violent minority to eventually take over, and the inevitable product, he suggests, is uh, a totalitarian regime like the Soviet regime that he himself fled from. So his view is that, basically, that you should have a strong, centralized state and not worry so much about democratic niceties. This is why people refer to him as Putin's philosopher. Putin personally played a role in making sure that his body was brought back to Russia after Putin came to power. Um, he apparently gives out this book. Putin gives out this book to government ministers and encourages them to read it. That's why people talk about this as it involves. So the reason I'm flagging it, however, the reason I want us to think about it is because it suggests that this, this, um, this operation uh, during the US presidential election was not simply tactical. It's actually an expression of this view of democracy. The thought is that by using social media, by using social media to get people to get riled up and angry and distrust one another, then you can accomplish, accelerate what um, the Ilianist doctrines already built into democracy. So when Mueller's indictment says that the, the stated goal of the Russian operation was spreading distrust toward the candidates and the political system in general, that's the idea there. Okay? And amazingly, 
whatever you think of Ilian's use about democracy, this, this, this tactic, this social media maneuver, seems to work even when people know about it. In fact, it might work better when people find out it happened. So I'm going to give you a couple quick examples. These are from Facebook. I just, these are just screenshots I took of Facebook on Friday, three days ago. Okay? And they were about the current top issue in US politics about gun control. So this is the MSNBC page. And here's the thing about state gun control laws. Don't worry too much about the exact details right now. What's interesting is the comments. Somebody in RJ gives a standard argument about how um, gun control safety checks wouldn't do anything about shooters, et cetera. And then somebody else named John replies with what, I, what apparently is Russian, and, and Facebook translates as, you're checked by mail, comrade. Hmm. Right, the implication right away being, you didn't actually mean that standard argument against gun control. You are actually a paid operative of the Russian government. Is, is, it, is it a good translation? Receipt, receipt, receipt. Ah, receipt. OK, cool. Well, Facebook is in the vicinity. I, I don't know any Russian, but Facebook did this. All right, so that's one example. His brother, by the way, not What's that? Also brother, brother. OK, so it's, it's in the vicinity. OK, so a second example. So this is from the same day, a few hours later. This is on the Fox News site. This is about Trump giving a speech at the, at the Conservative Political Action Committee. Um, and um, again, the details don't matter so much as someone posts the following long comment. This person, Brian, talks about how he didn't vote for Trump, but he was being open-minded. But now he's concerned. He's really concerned. And he was sort of a standard, I'm a moderate, and now I'm concerned about Trump. You don't have to read the whole thing right now. But then, here's the comments that follow. Troll times 10, troll. Oh, look, a Russian troll, a shooter troll. Go hide before you're found. Oh, look, a deep state trail. And Brian is not real. Paid to troll, what they all say. We have a long stream of them. Um, and I want to just flag, this is Fox News, which is on the political right. And um, if people think that the debate about Russian trolls is just a thing about the left, it, that doesn't seem to be true. It seems at this point, on both sides of the political divide in US politics, people are ready very quickly to accuse others of being bots or Russian trolls, of being operatives of a foreign government, paid by a foreign government. And so what I want to suggest is that social media set us up from the way, the way it's structured, set us up for someone to intervene and um, convince us to doubt the sincerity of other participants in public debate. So it used to be, once upon a time, that what you had to say was that you were having an argument with somebody at the student union or something, and you say, well, that person's a paid agent of the Soviet Union. They're a, they're a, they're a communist fellow traveler. They're, they, they've got these, these, these bad intentions, they're, they're, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. These days, you don't have to say they're a person. You argue with them on Facebook, you know, that's not even a person. That's a computer program run out of St. Petersburg. So we move from having to treat arguments, arguments in political debate, seriously as reasons given in this communal deliberation to just fronts for computer programs and for operatives of foreign, hostile foreign powers. And so we lose the assumption that we're engaging in sincere trading of reasons. So that's problem one. Problem two has to do with the way that social media encourages us to think about political discourse as a source of entertainment. This is also not a new point. There's a screenshot from a 1973 art piece by Richard Serra and Carlotta Schoolman called Television Delivers People. They bought advertising time on network television in 1973, it's a long time ago. And they, it was a seven minute long thing showing you messages like this. And this is the source of the dictum you often hear about social media these days, which is if you are not the, um, if you're not paying, then you're not the consumer, you're the product. The idea is that the consumer 
is the advertiser, the person who wants to sell, basically wants to buy access to your eyeballs, and the television product is, to get the, is there to get you to sit and watch long enough so that advertisers can be shown to you, and that's good for the advertisers, it's good for the network, it's maybe not good for you. This basic idea has been around for a while, but what I think is missed here is that there's a difference in how traditional media work and how social media works. So traditional media was basically a passive media. You sat there and you watched television, you listened to the radio, and cash was made off of, off of advertisers paying to get access to your sensory organs. Today, however, it, it, your, your role is active. And social media, cash isn't just being made off of you sitting there passively absorbing it. It's being made off the fact that you argue with people on social media. You like their posts or dislike them or post angry things or call them Russian trolls. And that starts a fight. And everybody sticks around and keep fighting with each other. And they stay there longer and longer. And that allows Facebook to sell more advertising money. So it's your active engagement, your, your engagement in political discourse, the, the, the very thing that, that, that is supposed to be the lifeblood of communal deliberation, that's the thing that's being monetized. It's not just your passive watching, but it's actually the practice of political, of public political deliberation itself. People are worried about this. The uh, engineer who invented the like button for Facebook uh, publicly announced that he would no longer use the Facebook app longer works for Facebook. Um, and then he would limit his own Facebook time because he's worried that the, that the system had been designed to encourage people to not be able to let go. Further, and this is interesting, this takes a little bit to keep track of, there's an article from the Wall Street Journal published in September um, when people started finding out about, about, the, um, about the Russian interference in the election. Basically, you don't have to read all this, but to get the basic idea to you, the way Facebook normally works when it posts ads, there's a bidding system, a very quick computerized bidding system where advertisers that pay more get their ads featured first. But it turns out there's an exception to this. If an ad gets a lot of, uh, a lot of attention, which could mean people being happy about it, it could also people fighting very angrily about it. If an ad gets a lot of attention, then that ad actually gets featured higher, even if the advertiser paid less. So in other words, getting a lot of attention on an ad trumps paying more for it. And in fact, according to this article, that benefited the Trump campaign because they paid less for their advertisements than the Clinton campaign and left-aligned groups did because Trump ads tended to get a lot of attention. Not necessarily positive attention. A lot of people getting very mad and writing angry comments about it back to the advertiser. But, um, but, the, but according to this article, the, the idea is that it costs less for uh, Trump-aligned... Uh, sorry, you look like you want to... Yeah, I just wanted to say, because I don't on social media too much, but okay. the, the algorithm of the ads is not just about the payment. About what it targets the people who have this interest. So oh, even sure. if, if you pay a lot of money for, for one ad, but yeah, it's yeah. not money of your, my interest, yes. I would make my one to see because course. I'm not going to click on it. So yeah, I'm so, I, so, I, so I'm simplifying a really complicated thing that involves lots of different input into the algorithm. Um, but but you might have thought that um, that the amount people are willing to pay would be a, a dominant driver. And what this shows is that that can be trumped even by things like um, did a lot of people in your social network get really angry about this post? Were they responding to it? And so what this, what this is an example of is how uh, basically Facebook's um, financial system works is that it's willing to give away slightly higher payments in order to get angry, anger-causing things because that'll keep you in attention, It'll keep you on the site, It'll keep you there clicking and reading the anger-causing things and commenting on them and putting little angry faces there and then posting it to your friends so they can put little angry faces on it and so forth and so on. Okay. You can see examples of this pretty easily. Again, these are just screenshots I took from Facebook on Friday. Um, and there are two different conservative media organizations. One is the National Review on the left. The National Review is an established, um, uh, sort of traditional, whether or not you agree with them, they're a responsible news organization that posts relatively traditional content, okay, and makes arguments. Here's an argument about the gun control debate and whether or not 
the, the survivors of the Parkland massacre should be accorded the centrality of public debate that they currently are being in the United States. Here's on the same day, a few hours apart, a Breitbart post. Breitbart is the sort of, I don't know how to neutrally describe Breitbart. Um, it's, the, it's, the, it's the place through which Steve, Steve Bannon ran it for a long time, and it is, it is the, like, just on the bordering edge of almost responsible, but not really. Um, journalism, it posts lots of inflammatory stuff. And, um, and this is an article in they, they had a long series last week about how basically they claimed CNN was telling Parkland survivors to, um, to basically telling them what to say on television. Um, and they were claiming that some of the Parkland survivors were lying and CNN was lying. It was a, it was a ginned up controversy. It was just to cause chaos and just to cause anger. Um, there doesn't seem to be any substance to it. Okay, but so these are both posted about the same time. They're both on the same side of the political spectrum about roughly the same public debate. And now look at these numbers. The number of people who responded, 366 responded here and 78 shared it. On the Breitbart side, 8,000 people responded to it and almost 3,000 people shared that post on their page. That doesn't necessarily mean everybody's happy. There is a number of angry faces on both of these. I bet lots of people were like, I don't agree. Let me tell my friends that I don't agree. But the point is that it gets much more engagement when you engage in fever swamp conspiracy theories about how survivors of massacres are actually being paid or actually being fed uh, false narratives to tell the media than it does if you engage in relatively responsible engagements in public discourse. So the money, the attention, goes to this kind of thing. This is favored by Facebook. Facebook's own algorithm promotes this kind of thing rather than um, relatively decent engagement. So I want to suggest that this adds to this, this lost presumption of sincerity. We, we lost the idea that we assume everybody's arguing in good faith. Further, the, this financial incentive built into the network itself to get us to engage in, in fire-producing, heat-producing, attention-producing disagreement that's not necessarily reasonable or thoughtful or trying to look for chances to see other people as, as uh, fellow occupants of the space of reasons. Last of the three factors I want to talk about, and I'm going to talk about this one a bit more quickly, this has to do with, uh, with fake news. It has to do with how our epistemic norms are being affected by, um, by social media. And here I'm mostly recapping for you something I've argued in another paper, which is why I'm going to do it quickly. It's a paper uh, published last year in the Kennedy Institute of Ethics Journal uh, called Fake News and Partisan Epistemology. So if this is very quick, then you can go read the paper and you can get more of the, the details of the argument behind it. But part of the thing I've, I've noted in the paper is that in normal debate, in normal, not, sorry, not debate, back up, in normal information sharing, normal information sharing, we have norms about how testimony works. Testimony, I don't mean like court testimony, I mean like the philosopher's conception of testimony, where it's I'm telling you such and such happened, and you believe it on the basis of me telling it to you. You have no further information about it because I told you, and because you trust me, you believe it because I told you. And so we have norms about when people will employ this kind of testimonial assertion. Among those norms are, I mean it, I'm sincere, and the other is I'm confident. I actually, I'm not just making stuff up, I actually do know something about the topic I'm talking about. And normally we think it, it's inappropriate for you to engage in telling people stuff unless you satisfy those norms. People reasonably would hold you accountable if you go around telling people stuff happened and it turned out that you didn't actually fulfill those norms. Notice, this is a little bit tricky here, notice there's something different we do where we testify to what other people said. So when I tell you, or when the newspaper tells you, Donald Trump said X last week, I'm not necessarily saying I agree with what Donald Trump said, I'm not necessarily saying what Donald Trump said is true, but you're, you're judging whether I accurately repeated to you what he said, whether or not I made up something he said, or whether I repeated to you correctly what he actually said last week. But you're not assuming that I agree with everything he said. So that's, that's a standard distinction of the way we use testimony in normal life. What I want to claim is that, Social media is rapidly eroding that distinction in a way that we're not keeping a very good track of. 
and is causing trouble. So this is the idea, prominent on Twitter, that a retweet is not an endorsement. A retweet on Twitter is where you simply take something somebody else tweeted and you send it back out again on your own account with an RT, retweet in front of it, or a little icon so people know you're retweeting it. And so journalists often say, retweet is not an endorsement, I'm just telling you somebody said this, doesn't mean I agree with it. And this practice is used by lots of other people as well, often I think in ways that are very plausibly abusive. So here's a good example from Donald Trump himself. In 2015, when he was already a declared presidential candidate, he tweeted out this, which was mostly a bunch of linked gibberish. But if you click on that last link, it's been deleted since. If you click on the last link, you would have seen the following infographic. Okay? This is all bullshit. These are all made up statistics. The source cited at the bottom, the Crime Statistics Bureau of San Francisco does not exist. Um, none of these statistics are real. I'm going to draw particular attention to this one that claims that 81% of American whites are killed by blacks. The actual figure is 15%. These numbers were just made up. They were made up by white supremacists. This, this figure was originally circulated by a bunch of white supremacists on the internet a couple weeks before Donald Trump got around to tweeting this infographic. And let me just stress, he was at that point a declared candidate for US president. He wasn't nominated yet, but he was a declared candidate already when he tweeted this. Okay, so he got called out for it. And he admitted, okay, it turned out to be good numbers. And none less than Fox News' Bill O'Reilly called him out for it on the air. And so he said the following, Bill, am I gonna check every statistic? All it was is a retweet. It wasn't from me. So a retweet is not an endorsement. The idea that you can always just say, I didn't really, I don't stand by it. I was just retweeting what somebody else said, okay? So that was an extreme example. Um, but lots of people do that, ordinary people who aren't Donald Trump do this as well. They post a thing on Facebook, uh, a news story on Facebook, and they're happy to be credited with, with informing their friends of this interesting thing so long as it turns out to be true. But if it turns out it wasn't true, they're quick to say, oh, I wasn't saying it was true, I was just sharing it. Or by, I'm just passing it along. A reshare is not an endorsement. I wasn't standing by it with my own epistemic authority and saying, I'm, I'm promising you this is true. I was just resharing it. That's all you do on Facebook and, and, and Twitter. You just reshare stuff all the time. Okay, so this is a thing we do. People do this right now. But notice, this is what I call in the paper, it's a form of bent testimony. It's where it's, it's not quite in either of the standard models we have here. It's neither me putting myself out to be held accountable for making mistakes in my testimony, nor is it exactly just me quoting somebody else, because of course I want credit if it turns out to be right. If I share a piece of exciting news and it turns out to be true, and I was the first one among my friends to share it with everybody, people are gonna like give me little hat tip symbols and that's gonna be exciting. So I want credit if it turns out to be true, but I don't want to be blamed if it turns out to be false. And we're at this weird moment right now where um, we don't have established norms about whether or not you can hold people accountable for this kind of thing. And I think that's a big part, this is what I explained in this paper I was just talking about, a big part of how fake news gets driven. That people have a sort of half share, half, half testimony, not testimony sort of thing going on. And I also argue in the paper that a big part of this is partisanship. This is the part of the argument I can't give you right now because I'm going quickly, but I claim in the paper that with, given the nature of partisanship, it actually becomes individually reasonable to do all this stuff. It becomes individually reasonable to believe your co-partisans when they post fake news because it looks to you like they're engaged in genuine testimony and you're gonna give them the benefit of the doubt if they screw up. And I claim that all this stuff is individually reasonable on a partisan basis. Can't give you the whole argument right now, but you're very welcome to go read the paper or ask me about it later. So put all that together. What I'm claiming is that we used to have norms in public discussion where you were reporting stuff and it was clear and unambiguous whether you were making a claim yourself, whether you were reporting somebody else's claim, and you could be held accountable according to one of those, one norm or the other, depending on which it was. But we now, it's super ambiguous when we're making factual claims on social media, which of those things we're doing, and it makes it super hard to hold each other accountable when we screw up, when we transmit fake news. So, 
all these things go together. Social media is doing all of these things. And I want to just flag, before I move on, I want to flag that the motives for each of these are importantly different. This first thing here is bad motives. These are, these are, these are people deliberately creating um, fake accounts, bots and fake accounts to interfere. <coughs> they could be Russian intelligence. They could also be celebrities buying a bunch of Twitter followers, which apparently is a thing that happens. They buy bots to generate lots of Twitter followers. Or large corporations using fake advertising and they disguise as actual real people on, on Twitter. But these are bad actors who are deliberately manipulating the system to get their ends. The second category here are is more kind of a reckless motive. This is the social media accounts, and the social media platforms themselves who are making money off of it. They're not out to destroy public discourse but they're making money off of it. So they're gonna go along with a certain amount of destroyed public discourse in order to make money off of it. It's not like malicious, but it's reckless. And this last category is interesting because actually I don't think there are any bad motives here at all. This is just a feature of the technology. We have, remember that the, 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 I stressed at the beginning we're only 40 years into social media, we're really only 10, 15 years into social networks. We don't really know how to adapt our norms of testimony yet. So this is just a feature of how we don't quite understand the technology well enough yet on a social level where we've established norms of holding each other accountable. This isn't even badly motivated, it's just we're still parsing this stuff. Put all these things together, we can't trust people if they really are people, how they're sincere. We're incentivized by the network to engage in, um, in, in more heat than light generating uh, political discourse. And we don't, we reasonably enough are starting to recognize we can't really trust people when they tell us factual claims that are relevant to political discussion. Or at least we engage in this very ambiguous and back and forth and I'm sort of committing, not committing when I exchange political information with you. Put all these together and I suggest, I'm claiming, that social media is rapidly eroding the space for communal deliberation. This is why I gave you this framework at the beginning from Williams this idea that this is the way democratic debate is supposed to work, where we're operating in the space of reason, sharing, honestly, sincerely sharing arguments with each other, where we're being pushed back, I'm suggesting, more towards these modes of operation, thinking about each other as something to yell at on the internet to punish, to get you to go along with what my side says is right, or even as a bot, as just a bit of code, not even something you engage with as a human being. We're not thinking about disagreement anymore as an opportunity for communal deliberation. We're thinking about it more in these sorts of and I'm suggesting, this is certainly not new, it's not like this has never happened before in history. William's whole point was that before the development of democratic systems, people didn't have this way of interacting. But what I'm suggesting is that social media is pushing us in this direction, okay? So, we spend the last few minutes asking if we can do anything about it. And the answer is not as far as I can tell, but that's going to be the question session afterwards. People can suggest ways of fixing it. So I want to talk briefly about three different broad approaches to how to solve this problem. I'm going to suggest the obvious two, state solution and consumer solutions, don't work. So some people think we should solve this with the government, that states should nationalize social media, uh, Twitter should be nationalized, or Facebook should be brought under heavy federal regulation on the grounds that these are public utilities. So some former workers of these companies have advocated this publicly, a number of, um, of public intellectuals have advocated this as well. And I think there's a pretty strong reason to be very, very wary of this approach. And the reason why is because it's been tried before. So go back to our early example, go back to radio, go back to the 1920s when Father Charles Coughlin took to the airwaves. Coughlin was uh, born in Hamilton, Ontario. He was actually educated here in Toronto before he moved to Detroit, where he took over uh, being the parish priest at the Shrine of the Little Flower in Loyola, Michigan. And um, he started off on the radio in 1926, actually for a good reason. The Ku Klux Klan burnt crosses in the front lawn of the church. Um, you know, they were anti-Irish, anti anti-Catholic, and he took to the radio to try to educate people about um, Irish Catholics and to try to confront this kind of oppressive uh, treatment by the Ku Klux Klan. 
and for the first 10 years or so of his radio program, it was relatively mild and, and reasonable. And then he kind of took a turn in the mid-1930s. And he began speaking favorably of fascists, of, of, uh, of uh, Hitler and Mussolini, uh, of the Japanese militarists. He began speaking very negatively, in fact, of the US system. He began advocating for a turn away from, dem from, dem from democratic debate. So the US government wanted to do something about this. It actually took them several years. It was a very long story. I was reading about it a couple days ago. It was really complicated. But at the time, there was no legal method to do anything about advocating for fascism in the United States. Um, but they eventually managed to threaten all of the radio stations that they would lose their air licenses if they continued um, airing him. So basically, they couldn't directly stop him. The US First Amendment prevented that. But basically, they told all of the radio stations, you will no longer be allowed to broadcast if you continue to allow him to use your airwaves. Because you have a public license, a public good, the airwaves are publicly owned. You can't use them anymore. Okay, So that's how they shut down Father Charles Coughlin. We could have a discussion of whether or not that was a good thing to do at the time. But whether or not it was a good thing to do at the time, very quickly thereafter, the very same mechanism was used in ways I think most of us were not so good. So in 1950, this publication came out. It was called Red Channels. It was published by an anti-communist advocacy group in the United States who began listing a bunch of famous celebrities, including here, Pete Seeger and Leonard Bernstein, who they accused of being members of the American Communist Party and trying to subvert the United States. And about the same time, Broadcasting Magazine, which was sort of the internal journal of the radio industry, published this op-ed, which said, communists and communist sympathizers have no place on our air. It is the duty of the station licensee, the network to which a portion of that responsibility necessarily is delegated, to ascertain that those who harbor views contrary to our form of government be denied access to our microphones. It's the same mechanism. The thing about licenses, licenses being used to, to threaten individual radio stations, basically to keep these people off the air. So it wasn't directly that the government went in and banned the people on that list from being able to be on the air. Rather, they used the threat of license withdrawal to get the radio and TV stations themselves to keep to blacklist these celebrities who are claiming as being members of the Communist Party. All I'm doing right now is rehearsing a standard argument about government, government attempts to put its thumb on the scale in speech debates. But I've just been kind of struck by the way this has sort of disappeared from current discussions about how to procedurally manage social networks. So when people talk immediately about treating them as utilities and regulating them as if they're utilities, then I think the someone, someone needs to explain very quickly how it's not going to degenerate or open itself up to being used in the same way as 1950s use. The quickest way for to think about this is imagine if the Trump administration, the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, and the Trump administration got to decide which websites counted as fake news and deny them access to social media on that basis. That's not, I don't think, a very good idea. Um, and so anyway, so I'm, I'm probably making a point people have already thought of before, but I, you don't see it as much in this debate, which is surprising. So I suggest that state uh, responses aren't going to work very well here. The me whatever mechanism the state might employ is likely to just end up being abused, even if it temporarily solves the problem. What about the rest of us? What about people? What if we went to the social networks and said, look, you're monetizing our fingers, our thumbs, our eyeballs. We're going to demand you, do you, you fix this, or else we're going to walk away. What if we boycott Facebook and Twitter until they fix the problem? The problem with this, I think, is the, is the basic economics. So. Um, uh, economists who work on social networks point this out, but the reason why Facebook has a strong income density advantage is that it's very hard to break in. The reason why you use Facebook is because all your friends and family are already on it, and it's not like some new social network can come along and instantly recreate all of that for you. Similarly, you can't just like drop out of your entire social network and stop responding to people's invitations to their birthday parties. You can't stop or clicking like and putting little smiley faces on pictures of their babies and cats because people will notice you're not paying attention anymore on Facebook. Unless everybody agrees together at once, we're all as a big social group going to stop using 
in the service all together at once, then it's a really heavy social cost for you to pay. Individually announced, I'm boycotting Facebook right now. I'm boycotting Twitter right now. I'm not saying people can't do it. People do do it. I, I know people who've done it for, for exactly this reason. But the point is that it's really hard to do. It's not as easy as saying, I'm boycotting a particular television station. Now I'm going to watch the other one. You, don't, you can't do that with social media the way it's currently constructed. Okay? So if this was going to work, it would have to be organized incredibly well. So a whole lot of us told each other all at once, we're all going to drop off of Facebook and not hold each other accountable for not responding to each other on Facebook anymore. We're all going to have to organize this really complicated social movement. How would you organize it? <laughs> Facebook is how you would organize it. <laughs> and I've seen people try to do it, and it doesn't really take. Okay? So it's not impossible but it doesn't seem likely to work. Consumer solutions don't seem like they're caught in the same kind of economic trap that, that challenges to the existing networks uh, already have. So if neither of these things is going to work, what possible solution could there be? And I think the place, one place it could come from is internal to the, to the um, companies themselves. I think that people working within the social networks themselves have to stop and think, are we doing a good thing right now? Are we contributing well to public discourse? And are we motivated to try to fix this? And I think there are signs. I, 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 people argue about this. It, it's, it's like Kremlinology trying to read the minds of, of uh, Silicon Valley executives. People argue about the intentions of Mark Zuckerberg. But I actually think the people who run these companies do mean well. They're trying to do well. Okay, so here's Mark Zuckerberg posting a few weeks ago on his own Facebook account about how Facebook's going to change this year. And he says that um, the goal he's giving to the product teams is now focusing on helping find relevant content to having more meaningful social interactions. And he says that in your newsfeed, you'll see more for your friends, family, and groups, and you'll see less from businesses, brands, and media. The idea is more to get you involved with people around you. Notice, uh, so there's basically two goals here. One is to get you away from sharing a bunch of fake news garbage, but the other is to keep you engaged on Facebook so that the advertisers can still be mixed in among the posts from your friends. But still, the intention is, I think, broadly positive. And Twitter, just last week, just a few days ago, Twitter um, eliminated 50,000 accounts overnight that it had decided were, uh, were bots. Um, some of them were connected to Russian intelligence, some of them were just owned by celebrities, some were owned by media brands, whatever. But Twitter overnight shut down 50,000 accounts that decided were bots, and it's had a backlash. So it's an article from the Daily Beast about how many of these were on the alt-right, many of them were, were fans of neo-Nazis, and the neo-Nazis are very mad and are accusing Twitter of engaging in a kind of, um, a kind of uh, censorship. Um, and there's a debate now as to whether or not these really were bots and whether this is just censorship being brought down by Twitter. And so Twitter, again, this all happened like five days ago, so who knows whether Twitter is going to deal with the storm of being accused of intervening in a public debate on one side. These are, most, for the most part, pretty far to the right, but still, it's a public debate. Is Twitter going to weather the storm or is it going to restore all of these accounts? We don't know yet, but this is an effort made. However, both of these efforts so far from Facebook and Twitter have been kind of blunt and they've been kind of like, um, good intentions, but, but very, very heavy-handed and blunt, and not very finely drawn. So I want to finish with two suggestions that I think are more carefully done, that could be done, could be done by the social networks, but aren't yet. Because the question is why and what it would take to motivate them to do it. So here's one example. This is from the design agency IA. They're a tech design company, and this is you can take a look at this as a blog post they posted about a month ago um, uh, about how Twitter could be redone. And so what they're showing you here is the way your feed currently works on Twitter, where everything looks the same, including this, which is a bot. It's, it's not a malicious bot. It's a fine bot that's just sharing um, a news agency, but it's a bot nonetheless. And it looks the same as all the others. And they suggest this redesign, where the bot appears in a different font, a more computery font. So you can see, immediately, this is a bot talking at you and not a person. 
And Twitter has the technology, not, not perfect reliability, but has a pretty good chance of detecting bots. And the reason it can do that is because it keeps track of things like how quickly was that typed? You know, it was typed faster than human fingers can move. Uh, was, it, was the text identical to that shared on 20,000 other accounts within the same five seconds? That kind of thing. It can figure out things like that. So Twitter can fairly reliably detect and automatically label bots. And further, this is the idea of suggests, they can be transparent about this. So th this, this is they propose something like this, um, where you click on the names of the, um, you click on the account, and you can see why Twitter classified this one as a bot, because it uh, posts in under a second and it has a robotic sleep pattern, which is one of the most interesting things. It doesn't really sleep at a clear time of day. It's always active. Whereas this person is a person, and they have a normal sleep, a healthy sleep pattern. <laughs> it takes them a little while to, uh, to post. Okay, so this is just a mock-up, but I thought it's a pretty good idea. Um, and the idea is just make it super transparent to people when Twitter thinks an account is a bot. That would help a lot with some of the problems about sincerity, about trusting that people really are people on social media. Second one, second example. This is something Facebook tried. So in December of 2016, right after the election, Facebook announced that they were going to do something new. Whenever you tried, to, it was, Facebook was going to use independent fact checkers to keep track of which things were indicating fake news. And Facebook would tell you when you tried to post a fake news story. And you'd be given a little prompt like this one, disputed by third parties. Would you like to still share this story? They're not going to stop you. You can still share it. But you, um, but they asked you first, and in some iterations of this test, they would flag it. So if you saw it in your newsfeed, you would see a little box next to the story saying, "This has been disputed by independent fact checkers." A year later, Facebook canceled this program. Facebook said this wasn't working. They said they had academic research showing that actually it just entrenches people. When people people see that they're being told that, that the story they want to share is fake news, they just get mad and say, "No, it's not. You're fake news." And then they share it anyway, and then they're even more convinced it was right. And so Facebook said that they're not going to use this technique. It's that now, if you try to share something that's been flagged, they're going to um, they'll let you post it, and then next to it, related articles will appear that give different views on the topic that would allow people to see other, other uh, interpretations of the facts. OK, so we can talk about whether or not that's a good maneuver. But I actually think that the problem with the original thing was not what they were doing. It was that there were no teeth to it. I think this was actually a really good idea. This idea of telling people this has been disputed by independent fact checkers, do you still want to share it? I think they should go back to that, but they should put some teeth on it in the following way. They should keep track of who still shares this stuff. They've got the data, they could easily do that. I'm sure they already have the data on when they were doing this last year. And they could keep track of who shares, who still shares disputed stuff, and they could display it in some very subtle way. So right now, on your profile on Facebook, they give you this little, little dot if you're a verified identity. What if they added just another little dot next to it? And what if it was green if you had no track record of sharing disputed news? But it turned yellow if you shared a little bit of it. And if you shared it all the time and maybe you were a Russian bot, it turned orange or red or some other threatening color. There's no reason why this couldn't be done. It'd be subtle, and it would not be imposing on your free speech. It would just be an easy, subtle visual indicator for you when you're skimming through your Facebook feed to see this person has a track record of sharing um, disputed stories versus this person doesn't. This is just a proposal. I don't, I'm not an expert in how to actually administer social networks. There are people probably in this room who know more about it than I do about, about problems with this. My point is just that this is stuff that could be done right now. There's nothing preventing this sort of thing from being tried, but it's not being tried right now. And what I, what, what I want to suggest is something like this is the likely solution here, or if there is a solution here. It's some sort of what I'm calling infrastructure, some technological thing that the networks can do to aid us as users in seeing transparently who has a track record of engaging in unreliable, well 
local discourse and who has a track record of, of, of sharing relatively reputable news sources. That's what I want to suggest. I, I, I'm, I'm almost done, so I'll hang, up on, hang on the questions to finish up. Um, but I want to suggest that this is the kind of infrastructure that, that the social networks, if they chose to implement, could use to help us get around some of these problems. I think they would sort out the worry about sincerity. They would help the worry about sincerity to some extent. They would hopefully reduce the incentive to only talk about the most anger-producing stuff if you start seeing a pen with little red dots. And they would definitely help with this worry about uh, norms of testimony because there'd be accountability for regularly um, retweeting without endorsing things on social media networks. Why networks aren't doing this? Well, there's pretty strong economic incentives not to do it. And of course, there's a big fight. This is why I think why Facebook really held back. There's a fight over who gets to decide what the facts are, which, which are the independent fact checkers. The way Facebook is doing it now, by the way, they just announced last month, what they're doing is they had surveys. They just asked a whole bunch of people, which sources do you trust and which sources don't you trust? And that's what they're now using to generate their, their other process. But I imagine you can see why there are drawbacks <coughs> to that approach as well. OK, so talked about this at length. I've suggested a bunch of reasons why uh, there are there are positive reasons to be worried about um, the effect social media is having on democracy. And I guess I've given a somewhat pessimistic overall view at the end. I'm not seeing obvious solutions, but hopefully maybe we can have a discussion about it and suggest some things that are better. Thank you, though, for listening.